Good morning. My name is Richard Moulton, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture reading today for the sermon. And we're going to be reading three sections in Romans, in Romans 1, and then again in 2 and in 3. You can follow along in your Bibles, in your bulletin, there's a little fire and one on the screen. Let's read God's word together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they didn't honor him as God or give him to thanks or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In chapter 2, 12, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And in chapter 3, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world help, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law come knowledge and sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested a part of the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness to the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And may God bless his word. Thank you, Rich. Well, good morning to everybody. Hope you all are enjoying our time of worship together. This is, uh, of course, the first Sunday of 2018. That's pretty exciting because uh, this is our first full year as a church. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, we've only been, this is all our sixth public service, I think. We had five weeks in December, and now here we are looking out over a whole new year. I couldn't be more excited. And I'm very excited about 
getting to look at the book of Romans. We're starting a brand new series today. Uh, we're actually going to do three series throughout this year in the book of Romans at different points throughout the year so that we cover the entire letter in a year. Uh, it, it's a, a wonderful letter to look at because it has had such a profound impact on people, probably unlike any other piece of writing ever been written. It's amazing. This is just a letter written 2,500 years ago by a man named Paul, you know, who was from the Middle East, and he wrote this letter to Christians who had, who had converted to Christ and were gathering together to form a new church, much like us, in the city of Rome. And he's writing about how his own life had been changed by the message of Jesus and how everybody else in the world's life can also be changed by the message of Jesus. And ever since the letter was written, sort of not a day has gone by in any year of time where there hasn't been somebody somewhere reading this, wrestling with what it says, passing it on to someone else. That's really cool to think about. And so we're going to look at it this morning, uh, starting today, but, but going over a long period of time. Um, I, I, I love the stories in history of people's uh, lives being changed by Romans. And this week I was just kind of going back through them, uh, just to give you a little taste of it, just so that you can maybe anticipate what God might do in your heart as we look at Romans. Whether you consider yourself a believer or not, it has something powerful to share with you. Uh, I think about, for example, one story uh, of a man who said when he read Romans, it was as if the gates of heaven opened in front of him. <laughs> and he felt born again all over again. But we're going to talk about his story at the end of, of the sermon today. Uh, and then I think about this little town up in, up in New England uh, in the 1700s when a man named Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a few sermons, just a few. He didn't do as many as we're going to do. He just did a few on, on Romans. And over a quarter of the town, more than a quarter of the town became Christians. And it began what was known as the Great Awakening. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have another Great Awakening uh, here. I hope so. I pray that. But I do believe there can be an awakening in your heart and an awakening in mine as we lean in to hear what's so powerful about this letter. And here's what I think is powerful about it. I think this letter, for all the people who've been changed by it, this letter answers most satisfyingly, if that's a word, it answers in the most satisfying way the most important question you can ever ask or I can ever ask in life. Now, if I ask you, what's the most important question in your life, uh, what would you say? I don't know, but we'd probably get all different answers if we all had to write it out this morning and share ours without copying or looking over. But Paul says this, and this is what the whole letter is about. The most important question in your life and mine is, are you right with your maker? Are you right with God? And if so, how are you right with God? If not, how can you be right with God? And Romans gives us this most powerful answer because in a nutshell, what it says is that only the power of God himself can make you right with him. Only the power of God himself working in your life can make you right with him. That's why I had us read so much this morning uh, out of the first three chapters, because I want to, uh, instead of getting caught in the forest, I want to get uh, in, in the trees, I want to show you the whole forest of one through three, because Paul is making this, this consistent argument in those first three chapters. Here is how God's power works in every individual's life who's right with God. Here is how it works out. Here's the grace of God in operation, so that by faith, he says, so that by simply receiving it as a gift, you and I can come into a right relationship with God that transforms our life. So this morning in these three chapters, I want us to see three things. Three things this morning about God's power to make us right with himself. You can see these outlined in your worship folder. 
Uh, the first one is, what kind of power is it? What kind of power does the gospel bring? It's a certain kind of power. The second one is why we need it. And the third is how we can get it. Uh, so let's start this morning with the kind of power that is. I hope that you noticed, even as Paul uh, began to open up his letter in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's demonstrating how powerful the gospel is by simply what he calls himself. Now, whenever you introduce yourself to someone, what do you, for the first time, you've never met them before, what do you choose to introduce yourself by? More than likely, the thing that you think is most important about you. I'm Stan, I am the pastor of Greater Hope, or I'm Stan, I'm the wife of Stacy, father of four children. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, something very important about yourself that you, you lead with. Here's what Paul leads with. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, that is, someone who's sent out by Jesus to share the message, and set apart for the gospel of God. His life, set apart, means wholly devoted, all in, completely consumed by this message called the gospel, which is just another word for good news. Now, why do I say that shows the power of the gospel? Because just years before writing this, had you bumped into Paul on the street and asked him, who are you? He would have said the opposite of all these things on every count. <laughs> he would have said, I'm an enemy of Christ Jesus. You see, because Paul was this up-and-coming religious superstar in the Jewish community. Everybody looked up to him. He was a scholar of the Old Testament. And when he heard about Jesus and those who would follow him, this crucified Messiah, he went after them. He persecuted them. He even had some of them killed. He was an enemy of Jesus. Not sent out for the sake of Jesus, but sent out by the authorities against Christians. Not set apart for the gospel of God, but set against it. Now what in the world could have happened that made Paul go from such a, a dead set, even violent enemy. Literally, he was a religious terrorist, if we can get our minds around that. Causing terror based on religion. And now he is turned into this man who is so fueled with love. So fueled with a desire to see other people get in touch with their maker and become right with their maker. That he says, I'm a slave of this one man, Jesus Christ. What happened in his life? Well, if you don't know the story... Paul is walking towards uh, another opportunity to arrest more Christians when he's arrested. He's arrested, not by a man alone, but he's arrested by Jesus Christ himself, the one who is God and man. He showed up right in the middle of the road. It was a light like the sun, kind of like what's shining at me right now, <laughs> which always, you know, week by week blinds me, but kind of like that light, maybe even brighter. It made Paul blind for a few, few days. And over those days, Paul began to understand what he calls here the gospel. The good news that even a religious terrorist can be right with his maker. The good news that even an enemy can become a friend. And so that's why Paul's writing this. He's writing to the people at Rome and he's saying, I'm eager to come to you because I want to share this same good news with you. I want to share the gospel with you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. A power that Paul knows he, he knows it inside and out because he knows it by personal experience. He has been utterly transformed by it. But I don't know if you notice this, but there's something really odd about the way Paul expresses his confidence in the gospel. I mean, he says there in verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is to say, I am fully confident in it. I am all in. There's no part of me even that doubts it. But yet, he says, I'm not ashamed. I mean, it's like if you've gone up to somebody 
and said, hey, how's it going today? And they said, well, I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. Instead of saying fine or good or okay or even bad, they say, I'm not depressed. What does that tell you about them? It tells you a lot, probably, doesn't it, about their state of mind. At least it tells you this. They recognize that depression is a real thing. And they recognize that it's a common experience. And probably even they are telling you that they commonly struggle with it, even though right now they're not struggling with it. And here's an amazing thing. It tells us a lot about what kind of power the gospel is to make us right with God. That Paul would say, it's life-changing in its power. And yet, its very power causes us commonly to be embarrassed of it. Now, can you think of anything like that in the world? Something that's extremely, amazingly powerful, but yet people are embarrassed to admit they know anything about it. There's hardly anything like that in the world. I mean, imagine you came up with a cure for cancer, and you went out to share that good news. Would there be any bone in your body that was even tempted to be ashamed of that news? Not at all. So why would Paul say, hey, I've been completely changed. You can be changed too. I'm not ashamed of it. Meaning Paul probably commonly was tempted, as we are commonly tempted with this, with this desire to want to, to turn our heads and, and, and cover what we have in Christ. I mean, even Jesus himself says, don't put the light of the gospel under a basket. Why does he even have to say that? Why would anyone put a light under a basket? Because there's something about the power of the gospel that makes us ashamed. And here's what it is. I think here's what it is. See if you agree with me. Think about all the people in our culture today, maybe some of you in here, and certainly everybody in here has a loved one, whether you're following Jesus or not, you have someone very close to you or someone that you know that's always ridiculing you about your faith or, or saying they don't really need Jesus. What is the common reason for that? I think that gives us a clue as to why the gospel causes us to be embarrassed. Commonly, what I hear is this, I don't need that stuff, that's for weak people. Uh, that, that's for gullible people. That's for people who, don't, you know, who can't figure out life on their own. I think I can figure out how to, how to deal with me and God. I don't need all that grace and falling on my face and confessing my sins and going to church and seeking assurance. I don't need all that kind of gospel stuff. That just seems so pitiful and weak. That's the common thing, isn't it? And that was true in Paul's day. I mean, how many people do you think looked at Paul and said, there goes that Paul. A man who had so much potential to be seen as this great religious hero, and he threw it all away to follow a guy that got crucified, to preach a message that was not about Paul's strength and Paul's intelligence and Paul's power, but a message that was entirely about someone else's power. And right there it is. Do you know the, the earliest uh, example of graffiti that archaeologists have found? is graffiti making fun of the Christian faith. And it was found in Rome, the city that Paul is writing to, from the time of Paul. And, and it shows this picture of a man hanging on a cross with a donkey's head. And under the cross is another man holding up his, his hands as if to worship. And the inscription says, here is Alexander worshiping his God, making fun of Christ, making fun of Christianity. What's it saying? What an idiot. What an idiot you would choose to worship a man who got crucified, the worst possible form of capital punishment you can imagine. What an idiot that you would say that you have no hope in your life except a guy who seems to us to be an awful lot like a donkey, a loser, 
a person who didn't make it anywhere in life. How often do you think Paul felt that pressure? And my question this morning is how often do you feel it? I know there, there are some of you probably that are struggling here. You're, you're following Jesus, or at least you're trying to. You're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. And there are people around you, there are people in your life who are constantly belittling you for that. And who are constantly saying that, that what you have has no power because what you have is all about being weak and all about being vulnerable and all about being helpless. And what Paul has to say is absolutely it is. Because that's exactly what people like you and me need. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in spite of all the temptations to be, in spite of all my struggles to be, I'm not. Why does he say it there in verse 16? Because it is the power of God alone to rescue us. It's the power of God for salvation. For in it, he says, the righteousness of God, not of me, but of God is revealed from faith for faith. Paul is showing us something essential about what kind of power the gospel has. It's a power that highlights our weakness. It's the kind of power that you cannot get access to unless you admit your need. In fact, the only thing you need is your need. <laughs> and if you bring your need and bring your open hands to God, God fills your open hands with the work that only he can do. It's a rescue mission, but you're not the rescuer in any way. I was looking back this week at one of those, you know, 2017 you know, in retrospect articles that pop up at this time of year, <clears throat> excuse me, and they had all kinds of, of pictures from the hurricanes. We have lovely memories from those, don't we? Uh, and, and especially Harvey was highlighted up in Houston. All these pictures of people taking their boats and canoes out into neighborhoods that had been flooded, picking people up, carrying them to safety. And I thought, you know, which side would I have to be on to be prone to boast about that? being involved in that situation? Which side would I have to be on in order to post it on Facebook and talk about it? Would it be the people riding the boat in and rescuing the helpless people? Yes, sign me up. I want to tell you about how I rescued people. But if I was the poor family that was stuck on top of the refrigerator or the, or the roof of their house because their house had flooded and there was nothing they could do to get out except someone happened to come by and pick them up, I, I, even though I'd be grateful, I would be slightly, maybe you would be too, slightly embarrassed about it. And right there I saw it. That's what Paul is saying here. The gospel is a rescue mission. You and I are entirely on the receiving end. When he says it's from faith for faith, what he means is from the beginning all the way to the end, it's only based on faith. In which faith is not what we often think it is. Faith is not me exercising all the power that I have of trust in God. And if I have strong enough faith, everything will work out. No, faith, like we just said, is an open hand that receives the work of another. Faith is looking outside of yourself and finding in God what only he can do for you because you could never do it for yourself. And some of you might be struggling with this. You might be thinking, you know, I wish I could believe but I don't know that I can be a believer. I don't know that I can be strong enough to be a believer. And what Paul is saying is, that's a nonsense question. The weakest of faith takes hold of a strong Christ. The weakest of faith. I mean, Jesus used to talk about a mustard seed-sized faith having great power. Why? Because the power is not in the faith. The power is in the one the faith grasps. Like when I, I'm at the beach with my family and, and one of us, Stacy or I, takes one of our littlest ones into the pool. They like being in the pool even though they can't swim. 
and I'm holding on to the baby, the baby's holding on to me, which grasp is most key? Whose grasp keeps the baby alive? Is it his or hers? I hope not. <laughs> it's not going to be very strong. It's going to get stronger as they grow. But the grasp that is key is my grasp on them. And so faith. The kind of power the gospel proclaims that you can be right with God is not a power that's found in yourself. It's a power that's found in God. You have to have God get a hold of you so that you can then get a hold of him. So the second thing this morning is, why do we need this? So if, if God in the gospel has revealed to us this power that's entirely not of ourselves and 100% of him, why in the world would we need it? Because Paul makes this really detailed and a little depressing argument for why you are far worse than you think you are. <laughs> and that's why you need this kind of power. Uh, he goes in verse 18 of chapter 1 to say, The wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Did you catch what he's saying? The wrath of God is revealed. That's how bad it is. God is angry at sin. He's angry at how you and I have treated him. Why is he angry at that? Because we have suppressed the truth about him in our unrighteousness. When he uses that word suppress, that, that word literally means to hold something down that naturally is not held down. The picture is like a really heavy-duty, very tightly wound spring. Can you imagine a big, heavy-duty, tightly wound spring that, that I had to put all of my weight on to press it down? And, and if I let any of my weight up, it, it pops right back up. Can you imagine how exhausting that would be? For like five minutes to keep it down? Can, can you imagine for a month? Can you imagine for a year? Can you imagine for an entire lifetime? And then if you can imagine that, that's what Paul says you and I do to our maker. And that's why, why he's against us. That's why his judgment stands against us. Because the truth about him, Paul says, is plain as day. It's written in the world that he made. It's written even in our own hearts. The way he's made us is designed always to have this awareness that we didn't make ourselves that there is a God, and there is this, this God that I ought to give worship and service to, that I ought to rely on and trust in, and yet all my life I'm holding down the spring, putting all of my effort into ignoring him. Ignoring the, the unignorable, that's what I'm doing. It's exhausting. You know, one of my favorite authors talks about how when he was an atheist, this is a, a man who went from being an atheist to uh, being a Christian over a long period of time. He said, when I was an atheist, I could not be too careful what I read, who I talked to, where I visited, what I thought about. And the way he described it is this, because everywhere I would go, if I just read one little thing or someone said one comment, it was like God was laying a trap for me to catch me. <laughs> he talked about how God was like a fisherman, always trying to get me on the hook. Or, or like a hunter, always sending his dogs out to bay me up. Or like he talks even like a chess player, uh, you know, cornering me in to a checkmate. <laughs> he felt like God was always chasing him. Have you ever had that experience? That feeling in your life like you're trying to ignore God, you're trying to keep him, keep, keep him at bay, but you can't? It's like he's always hot on your trail. 
You're always having to hold the spring down. You're completely exhausted in your life. You know things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but you don't want to, to get down to admit why they're not the way they're supposed to be. If you can understand that experience, you understand what Paul's saying. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he says that leads to the most tragic exchange that we've ever made. The worst trade that you can ever imagine. And he describes that in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, again, talking about us, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's he talking about? Idolatry. The horrible trade that we make because we suppress the truth about God and we want to run away from God is we try to find a God in every other thing. See, when you don't worship your maker, you'll worship anything and everything else. When you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. When you don't love and serve him, you'll love and serve everything else. That's the way the human heart works. And all of us, Paul says, have made this exchange. We thought it was going to make us more free to be away from God, but now we're in chains to our selfishness. We can't even love each other very well, much less love God. Well, we thought we were going to get this, this new sense of power and self-sufficiency, but we feel weaker and weaker and weaker the further away we get from God. Do you see what I mean when I say Paul is showing you it's far worse than you thought? You're in a worse position, and so you need a power that's far greater than you. And he goes to extra lengths to show we can't fix ourselves. We try to often, but we cannot fix ourselves. And so in chapter 2, Paul begins to address those people who feel like that they can be good enough for God, or at least they feel like they're better than most people. You see, because that's the way you and I often sort of knee-jerk reaction, the way we try to be right with God. When I ask the question, are you right with God? It's like a coin drops into our head and the same mechanics begin to work out in all of our hearts. And what usually we begin to think of is, okay, what have I done for God lately? How have I performed for him? Do I think it's enough that he would want to accept me? Have my good things outweighed my bad things? Or if they don't outweigh my bad things, at least do my good things outweigh that guy's good things? <laughs> at least maybe I'm better than that dude right? That's the way the human heart works. It's called being moralistic. Sometimes the most religious people, even in church, aren't following Jesus. They're not trusting in him, his power to save them. Really, they just have Jesus sprinkled over self-help. And that's not the gospel. This self-help sense of most people are good, and I think I'm basically good, and I'm going to just buckle, you know, you know, buckle myself up and, and go out and work on a better me. Those are the things you hear all the time. And Paul says every single one of those fails. Why? Working on a better me, it's like trying to clean a white shirt with muddy hands. If I'm working on a better me, my hands are soiled with this desire to replace my maker. And the more I go in there trying to do good, the more it becomes just a selfish pursuit. And all I'm then doing is I'm trying to use God to get more of what I want. It doesn't really grow me in the love that God wants me to have. When I compare myself to other people, yeah, okay, I may be a little bit better than the next guy. Like I may be about a 200 feet above sea level and he may be down at the bottom of a mine, maybe. But the standard, the God standard is the nearest star. And if God's standard is the nearest star, whether I'm 200 feet above sea level and he's at the bottom of a mine, it means nothing 
right? All of us, Paul says in chapter 3 here, have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard. I mean, think about it. Jesus said your whole life is about the golden rule. And so many people hear that and think, yeah, okay, that's easy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is that easy? Have you done that? Do unto others? I mean, what is that saying? That's saying I ought to care about and try to meet the needs of you and others as enthusiastically, as creatively, as eagerly, as readily as I meet my own. Have I done that? (laughs) Has anybody done that? Paul is saying the answer is no. And so even trying to be good won't get it done. Even saying maybe I've been slightly better than the next guy won't get it done. At the end of the day, it's far worse than we ever imagined, and we're completely lost. And so Paul has created a dark room, hasn't he? And then in chapter 3, verse 21, we see our last point, and that's when Paul begins to open up the shutters, and the light begins to pour in, and that light is the power of God at work. And so let's look now at how we can get God's power at work in our lives. First, you can see there in verse 21, Paul starts it with, but now. Everything is bad because of us. We've made this terrible and horrible exchange, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. Now his power comes into play. And and many people have said those two words, but now, are the most beautiful words in all the Bible. And I tend to agree with them. But now, in spite of, of all the, 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 the distance that I've traveled between me and God, in spite of all the hatred I've carried in my heart, despite all the efforts I've, I've made to suppress the truth about him in my life, but now, in spite of that, God has come near to me. God has exercised his power towards me in Christ in a way that actually can forgive me and can free me. And Paul begins to describe exactly how that works. And he says three different words. I want you to look at it there, starting in verse 22. He says, now the righteousness of God has revealed through faith, remember what that means, an open hand receiving what we can't do for ourselves, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, there were three huge words in there that nobody really understands. Let's break them down, right? Three very tough words, justification, redemption, propitiation. Those are big deals. Each of those words is describing what God did through Jesus on the cross. The first word is justification. That's the word of, the, of, a, of a judge in the courtroom when he puts the gavel down and he says, innocent, acceptable. You have passed the test. You can go free from here. There are no charges against you. And what this is saying is that because of what Jesus has done, anyone who simply believes in him gets God's gavel to come down and say, not guilty, but innocent, freed, not just 100% forgiven of all the bad things we've done, but 100% counted as if we did all the good things. Because Jesus came into this world in our flesh and blood to do all those good things for us. And so justified. Now that, that raises a big question. How could God do that? I mean, I thought God was a just judge. 
It would not be a just judge who just said, yeah, you committed murder. Well, no matter what, I like you, innocent. (laughs) That would not be a just judge. And so the next two words explain how God did it. Redemption and propitiation. Redemption has to do, just like with redeeming a gift card, it has to do with presenting the payment necessary to claim what's yours. Presenting the payment necessary to claim what's yours. And on the cross, what God was doing is he was doubling and tripling down. He was paying the full price that it took to rescue us from our life of rebellion to him. How did that work? That's the third word, propitiation. And what that word means is that that Jesus was like the lambs and the goats and the bulls that that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. That word was used about those sacrifices because that animal, like on the Day of Atonement, was placed before the presence of God. And the priest would put his hands on that animal's head and will begin to confess all the sins of the people over that animal. All the sins. All the sins. And then that animal would be killed. And that blood would be taken one time a year into the presence of God, into the holy place, sprinkled on the altar. And what that showed is that for the rest of that year, all the people whose sins had been placed on the animal were were given access into the presence of God. They could pray and their prayers would be heard. They could walk knowing that God was for them and not against them. They could know, I am 100% counted righteous, 100% forgiven, and so fully accepted. And Paul is saying, Jesus is the propitiation once and for all. He doesn't have to die every year like the goat on the Day of Atonement. Because he is God offering up an infinite sacrifice so that for now and forever the sacrifice has been made. Jesus was raised and went into heaven with his blood, so to speak, so that you and I, anyone who believes, could have perfect and free access to God. You know what that says? That says God at the same time was able to be perfectly just and yet also perfectly gracious to his people. Not a single sin has gone unpunished, nor will a single sin ever go unpunished. Either you will be punished for your sins or Jesus will be punished in your place. But God always does what is just. But he does it through Jesus. He he gives his son because he's also gracious. A friend of sinners. He wants sinners to come to him. He calls everyone to come. Whoever would believe gets to be a part of this sacrifice. Their sins placed on Jesus himself and them set free. Now that's revolutionary. If you've heard it a million times, I hope you're not hearing it as the same old, same old. Because here's what it's saying. To be a Christian does not mean, okay, I'm trying harder. To be a Christian does not mean I'm making better decisions than I used to or than most people. Being a Christian does not mean I'm from a better background than you. Being a Christian only means this. I am a justified sinner. I'm still a sinner. I'm still full of weaknesses. I'm still full of sins. I still do not deserve to come into God's presence. But even though I'm an utter failure before God, I'm favored. I'm favored. I'm given his his smile instead of his frown. I'm treated like his son instead of like a runaway slave who needs to be punished. I'm treated like someone who is near and dear to God's heart. A justified sinner, a favored failure. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's the powerful message that has transformed so many hearts down through the years. 
It's transformed cities, it's transformed countries, it's transformed all kinds of things when people realize, wait a minute, how I stand with God is the most important thing of my life. And the only way I can stand right with him is through that sacrifice, and God has supplied it. And so my, my encouragement to you is as we start Romans, would you think about these things? Would you, would you take them into your heart? Would you ask God through Jesus to justify you even though you're a sinner? To make you right, to draw you near? I mean, what happens when you do is, is you can't help but love Jesus above everything. <laughs> if you know he was the lamb slain in your place, he can ask me to do anything and I'll do it. That's how it transforms our heart. It begins to make us want to follow in God's steps. When we struggle with our sins and struggle with our weaknesses, it gives me the ability to be humble. I don't have to pretend I'm better than I am because I know I'm a justified sinner. But yet I'm also secure because I know I'm a justified sinner. When people ridicule me and say, that's for weak people, I'm able to be bold and say, yeah, just like me and just like you. But I'm also able to be compassionate because I know that whatever stones they throw at Christ, I've thrown them too. And I'm in no position to just say, I'm right, you're wrong, get with the program, become like me. No, I know if that lamb, if Jesus was not in my place, I would have no access to God. No access to God. At the beginning, I mentioned a man who said when he read this, heaven opened, and it was like he was born all over again. That was a man 500 years ago named Martin Luther. And the story behind that is he was a monk like really super religious. He devoted his whole life. He didn't get married. He didn't have physical possessions because he wanted to serve the Lord with gritted teeth. He was going to do everything right. He beat himself and all that kind of crazy stuff because he wanted to know he was right with God. But he came to the realization as he began to read Romans. He started to get angrier and angrier as he read it. Why? Because he realized, I hate God. I've been doing all this stuff for God, but really I hate God. I resent the fact that he's this boss tyrant who's always telling me what to do. And if I step out of line, even in a little bit, he's going to send me to hell. And as he read on, that anger began to give way as he read those words. It's the righteousness of God by grace as a gift. And he meditated on those words, grace as a gift. And that's how heaven opened for him. And if you know Martin Luther's story... He went from hating God to loving him. Literally, the whole world was turned upside down because he began to share the message of Paul's letter to the Romans, which had been kind of kept under wraps for a long time in culture and in the church. It's amazing what God can do when you recognize, I'm not worthy, but he has loved me anyway. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, you're good in so many ways, but especially in the fact that you're just, but also gracious. Lord God, we cannot ask you. It's, it's foolish to ask you to just pretend like our sins never happened. It's foolish to ask you just to look the other way and just give us a little, you know, to bribe you into giving us a, a little favor. That's not the way you work, because you're just the way we've treated you cannot go unpunished, just like a, a murder or some great crime could never go unpunished without society falling apart. But Lord, what we ask is something so incredibly amazing 
The only reason we can ask it is because you've told us that this is in fact what you've done. We ask that you would put Christ in our place. We ask that you would count our sins against him so that his righteousness could be counted against us and for us, for our favor. Draw us in and give us access. Lord, please help us to walk with Jesus, to to fall in love with him because he has been the only reason that we can stand before God right with him. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.